All right. So Jacob, you're ready for, you know, everybody's favorite part about the podcast, which Not- is long lectures on mythology and theology. Yeah, I'm <laughs> I'm as it's ready what, as I ever am, Mike. Yeah, it's it's about time we get back to basics, which is not, you know, it's just straight up lecture and, you know, get away from all that storytelling stuff. Yeah, you lecture and I'll make snarky comments from the back of the classroom. Welcome to the Voyage Podcast, a show that traverses the oceans of myth and legend through the lens of Catholic theology and philosophy. Come aboard as we set sail in pursuit of the heroic life and Christian virtue with your hosts, Mike Schramm and Jacob Platty. Oh, it's been five minutes of Mike straight talking, so I better wake yeah. up and interject. Yeah, exactly. Thank, it's, yeah. I appreciate you setting the timer, though. That's good. <laughs> yeah. so. Well, uh, if you can't tell already, Jacob's super excited about this episode of the Voyage Podcast. So welcome back, everybody. And um, look forward to uh, just, well, I guess... We'll see how much Jacob is able to uh, contribute. (laughs) Contribute, yeah. But uh, today we're going to be talking about the four theories of myth. Did you know that there were four theories of myth, Jacob? I mean, I think there's more than four, but you came up with four. Well, uh, first of all, I didn't come up with the four. I mean, I am, I am, I'm, I'm curating. I'm cultivating. Yeah, this reeked. The, this reeked of theft is what this did. This reeked of plagiarism when I well casually <laughs> reviewed your outline. I mean, not, I don't think I. I never claimed to have written it. I. <laughs> I mean, it's not like I don't know if you'd call that plagiarism. Yeah, still, but, you uh, can't call that plagiarism. No, and I. I'll get up, you I mean, yet, Mike. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Hey, if none of my professors have been able to, what makes you think you're going to be any better? <laughs> <laughs> Did you get this outline from Chat Chat GPT, Mike? Is this outline what the AI told you? It's not even that complicated. Nope, it's just <laughs> straight up. In, the AI would have been a, a, a better job, right? Like, uh, I mean, I don't know. I this is a real person who wrote it. It's some real person. Uh, I I I know that you're not besmirching the great name of Joseph. Joseph Campbell, whom we'll be uh, referencing and talking about a little bit. Maybe you noticed that as you were perusing. Never. So, uh, you know, just to give a little context to this, like Mike's like, hey, let's do this episode. You know, this is like three hours ago. He's like, let's do this episode. And it's like reading a book, right? It's like not even an outline. (laughs) It's, It's just like a chapter of like academic content. And it's like, okay, well, I'm just gonna like kind of peruse this and just like be snarky as you lecture. <laughs> That's the plan for this episode. I mean, so originally it wasn't meant to just be as it is. It was it was taken, you know, what I'll sometimes do is I'll copy and paste stuff and then I'll I'll take some stuff out, I'll work stuff around, you know, as I I mean, I try to work smarter and not harder, Jacob. Mm-hmm. And uh mm-hmm. you know, sometimes you just sort of <laughs> one of these days you'll get one of, of them right. Yeah. 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 Hey, <laughs> Fifty percent isn't bad, yeah. So, um, so anyway, well, uh, not only are we going to talk about that though. So, what the connection that I thought was interesting. So we have our, you know, because what we do so much is we have this kind of mythological and theological connection, mm-hmm. and um, so the I guess the the theological component, um, besides the fact that obviously myths are talking about God and the gods and all that sort of thing, but um, 
you will see this element of, because basically what these four theories of myth are is I almost looked at it as like there are four ways to interpret a mythological story, right? Four kind of angles you could look at it from. Mm. And I thought, where do we sort of see that in our Christian tradition? Now, I know that your, um, you know, Eastern mind doesn't like delineating things as clear as, uh, you know, my Western mind Immediately skeptical, immediately skeptical. Yeah, yeah. So that's uh, where you'll you'll provide some, I guess, some good... uh, Con- contrary, contrary opinions. Yeah. You but, just keep um, trying to separate those werewolves from those vampires, Mike. I mean, if I cared enough to even think more about those than what you make me do, Jacob, then I probably <laughs> would. But uh, so where where you actually see this kind of a similar sort of delineation is um, in the way that uh, in the catechism, it talks about how there are four senses to read the scriptures. And so you'll sometimes find, um, or and like I said, you'll find right in the catechism, paragraphs 115 to 120, it, it delineates these four different ways that one person could look at one individual scripture verse or one individual Bible story. And it's not that any of these senses are competing with the others. And that's what we'll kind of get into when we talk about the four theories of myth, is that it's not that any one of them is meant to compete with the other three. It's that they all sort of complement each other, that they all support each other. And in the same way, when a um, ancient Orthodox, lowercase o Orthodox, lowercase c Catholic reads the Bible, they are supposed to look at this individual scripture verse or this story of the Bible through these one of these four senses. And it's not at the expense of the other three, but it's actually a way to support and complement the other three. Are you familiar so, with the the four senses? Like is there something similar like within a Christian tradition? Within Christian tradition? Well, yeah, just like in your kind of background and yeah. you know, going well, through sure, those sorts yeah. of things. Well, I, I don't think I think that type of thing that truly is timeless. I think that yeah, we have that same early thousand year history where these types of four interpretive lenses were established mm-hmm. in that context, right? In that milieu, you know, probably frankly, even within the kind of like pagan. In fact, actually, I think that's true. Um, where even the pagans were applying these lenses to their own mythologies. Um, yeah, you know, so you had the kind of like. You had these intellectuals of their day, um, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to give one off the top of my head, but uh, who are like, oh, you know, a lot of the population actually thinks well, I that. Think, I think Cicero might have been one who yeah, was that known sounds for real. kind of having that, having that more like the literal versus the spiritual sense of, and obviously from his standpoint, it'd be his own scriptures or, you know, his own mm-hmm. um, revelation, so to speak. But yeah, I thought he was one of those. Um, no, that, that would actually, is... I would totally believe Cicero. I would, um, again, I'm just going to start throwing out like Roman names because yeah. I was like, Livy said this, you know, like, yeah. um, and so I'm not, I will not be accurate, but Cicero sounds real. Plato well, probably know, said it. Okay. So I, I was going to go there. So he actually, yeah. cause <laughs> yeah. so, so Plato is, um, cause obviously he gets more attention for his, his dialogues and his philosophy, but mm-hmm. in, I think. I think there's three examples. I, obviously, there's the most famous example of his myth of the cave in the Republic. Yeah. But um, you and I have actually talked about one of his other myths that I always just assumed that was a like pervasive cultural myth that he was just adopting. But I've also heard that he came up with the story of the Ring of Gyges. Remember when we were talking about our rings and uh, binding? Yeah. And the Ring of Gyges... Um, like I said, I've I, I maybe just always assumed that it was just a myth that was floating around the culture. Yeah, at the it sounds time. like it would have been. 
but I've also, like I said, I've also heard um, people propose that like he came up with that to reinforce his um, basically like a the, that the whole he thing made up. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. So, so you kind of well, have I thought that you sort were gonna. Like, I thought when you're going with Plato, because um, I can't remember which dialogue it is, but you know, there's the one where he uh, breaks down and attacks the popular notion of like the pagan deities, uh, like because those deities are clearly amoral, right? And where he starts to like bring out the forms and things like that and say like, you know, gods are not these storybook characters that go around molesting people or or being mm-hmm. petty and angry with each other the gods are good and they're divine and so they couldn't possibly be reflected in these type of crass stories that the population you know so he creates this dichotomy between like the popular myth that's yeah. for like the children right but then the philosopher can uh anagogically um and allegorically interpret these myths um to understand the gods better but i i forget which dialogue that is but it's a whole yeah. spiel. Yeah, it's one of those where I'd be open to correcting. Just it feels like something from the Republic, but um, you know, like I Maybe. said, I, I'd be open Maybe to correction on that too. Yeah. So let's actually. So what I want to do is, um, so we're gonna break. I'm gonna kind of go through what the four basic theories of myth are, and then we actually. I know you've kind of alluded to some of the four senses of senses of Scripture, but we'll kind of um, refer to those, break those down, and then what will be really fun, Jacob, is, and this is where the storytelling will get to come in. We'll actually get to go through some examples of, you know, how did this myth, how did this story illustrate this uh, function? How did it illustrate this theory of myth? Or how can we look at a certain Bible story through the lens of the literal sense, the allegorical, the moral, or the anagogical? What do you think? You going to be able to handle that? I, I guess I'll try to handle it. Um, all right. All right. Let's, let's get into this highfalutin, you know, technical jargon that you want to throw out. I I'm, mean, I'm genuinely rational. That's like super technical. <laughs> yeah. Rational. So, wait, wait. So there's a type of mythology that's called rational mythology. No, it's not. It's You've the rational already... myth theory, the rational okay. myth theory, which states that myths were created to explain natural events and forces. So this is like the most basic, like, oh yeah, people talked about Thor to explain why there was thunder. Like that's kind of the rational myth theory. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also, so you'll sometimes see it refer. So, uh, that's not even the language that, um, Joseph Campbell would use. He would use something like the cosmological function, right? Which obviously it's describing the shape of the cosmos or the order of the cosmos or the universe. See, I like so that. You'll see that. I like that much better. Like, yeah. uh, so I, I don't, you know, maybe go ahead and list out the four and then, okay. and then maybe, I don't know if the, cause you have four for Joseph Campbell too, don't you? So basically, they the idea is that, well, that's what I'm trying to kind of like, and this is where I, um, you know, I wasn't able to uh, fine tune my outline as much as I'd like to, Jacob. But, <laughs> okay. uh, but basically, yeah. So what, what you'll kind of see is that some of them will kind of match up a little bit better than others. Um, so you've got the rational myth theory. And then you've got the functional myth theory. So the kinds of myths created um, as a type of social control. So this is almost like the, so going back to Plato, this is like the noble lie sort of idea that you'll see. Um, And then you've got the, which again, that is a, that is a functional myth, right? Now it doesn't have to relate directly to, you know, the God this or the God of that. Sometimes the, the functional myth is 
I don't know, like all men are created equal or something like that, right? I mean, sure, be, yeah, yeah, to have a human rights, my hot take. you know, yeah, like uh, my functional myth, a noble lie, right? Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, so then the next one, <laughs> I know, wow, I just came out swinging today. That's, that's what you bring out of me. <laughs> that was, of course, sarcastic. Uh, I, yeah, so, I mean, I actually, I hear well, what you're saying, Mike. I think you make a really good point. It's, so. it's been, it, it can be seen through that lens in a certain cynical lens. It could be seen that way. We'll just say, mm-hmm. uh, the next one. So the, the third is the structural myth, um, which says that they're patterned after the human mind and human nature. So this is sort of almost like the, like the, um, Jordan Peterson. Yeah. I was about to say, that sounds like Peterson. It. Yeah. Petersonian yeah. type. Okay. Well, but see this one kind of is too. So then the fourth one is the psychological myth theory and this is uh based off of human emotion so this this is where i thought it got kind of weird where it makes this distinction between human nature and human emotion which is where i would kind of i wouldn't necessarily follow this author all the way through so the way that it's broken up give the third and the fourth together the third one is is third one is the structural myth which myths are patterned after human mind so that's more like the um that's like the carl Jung like archetypes okay all right. And then the fourth is psychological myths are based off of human emotion, based on So so a cynical person would say that like the story of heaven is meant to make you feel better about having to sacrifice. You know, it, it plays to your emotions, maybe? So so that could be sort of the um and again, I don't think that, you know, this you'll like this, you'll appreciate this, Jacob. I don't think that the line between them is all supposed to be super hard. Like one myth could have different, you know, that's why I said it's like reading reading the Bible. Well, you have you can look at the same story through the different lenses, through the different senses. And so you could look at uh, an ancient myth and say that it has the different whether it's a social or functional function, like um, you know, something like the uh, like the scapegoat, right? The scapegoat yeah. Like one of the things Rene Jard talks about is how the scapegoat mechanism, the action came before the story. The action came first and then they created the story or the myth around it, but it reinforced, it perpetuated the action. And, but that also is going to have a psychological aspect because like you, like you said, it kind of brings the people together for you know what you know, it, one way or another. You know what it sounds like to me is it sounds like um, when you would break down like a human being, right? And so you okay. could break down a human being and say, oh, a human being is, uh, you know, a, a flesh suit full of organs and bones and, you know, and break it down anatomically, right? Um, uh-huh. And that would be, um, you know, the building blocks of a human being. But then you could refer to a human being like as Like the material a, cause to use yeah, the mere, Aristotelian yeah, exactly, language right? Too. Hey, um, he has four causes. The number four, man, it's popping up. Like you know, I almost seasons. wanted to change. I almost wanted to change this to a number, like an I am number four episode. Oh and yeah, then we could maybe. <laughs> but then I was like, no, we'll probably do an Avatar, four. the Last Airbender too. Um, oh, we'll probably okay. do that. Where then we can Is do that... the four elements as well. But no, like honestly, like the idea of four fitting in with all this stuff, and like I said, Aristotle's four causes, I think, goes right along with these too. But I don't want to go. Well, that you know what? Thanks for bringing in that Christian Christianity <laughs> element, bringing in that grace, having that grace build upon yeah. my nature. I appreciate that. There you go. Now, like I said, I don't want to go down the rabbit trail too far. So, um, go ahead and um, yeah, keep uh, going through. Or, so anyway, anyway, you can almost say like so, like you can look at a human via their anatomy, their material cause. You can look at a human um as a rational creature and talk about like their 
you know, their psyche or something like that. You can talk about mm-hmm. human beings as like a social creature, right? There's a different, fa- like what level mm-hmm. do you want to address when you're talking about humanity? Yeah. Um, and they don't contradict each other. They're just no. different facets of the diamond, right? Um, yeah, one's not more real than the other. They all sort of equally, I mean, well, yeah, in one sense as, you could say one is more fundamental, which again, that kind of goes right along with the literal sense of scripture versus the spiritual senses. But like I said, well, I, I don't want to interrupt you. I already did. No, but yeah. I don't want to. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, well, I, like as you were given the four, it's like you know, they're all true, right? Like they're mm-hmm. all true, so they couldn't possibly conflict. And it would be, um, you know, any one that doesn't include the other four elements would be like a shallow interpretation, right? In the yeah. same way, to be a shallow interpretation to call a human just uh, nothing but their material elements right and electrocuted you know? meat sack sort of thing like yeah yeah it's like sack. that's that really yeah. just doesn't cover the whole picture does it so. well no and again it goes back to aristotle's four causes where if you only describe something by the material cause it's not untrue but it is just not enough it's leaving out yeah, you know, yeah. the formal mm-hmm. the efficient and the final and if so, you try to pretend it's the only thing that's true then it becomes a lie right you know so yeah we can talk about things and break them down into their components um and make true statements about that but the minute we try to exclude the others um it becomes a falsehood so mm. so um so i i know we were kind of trying to find so i i don't want to um because the joseph campbell in a sense you could say the joseph campbell descriptions they do match up i think pretty well we already said how the cosmological that's the language that he would use function of a myth is to describe the shape of the cosmos of the universe things like that that kind of goes with our you know rational language which i like you said admittedly i like that language better of of cosmological metaphysical i don't love the way that the word metaphysical is used but it says function to awaken us to the mystery and wonder of creation open our minds and our senses to the awareness of the mystical ground of being and the source of all phenomenon that sounds like it's um actually more the psych the psychological myth the fourth one. Oh, i see um and then the sociological that's passing down the law so that's obviously going to be the functional yeah, did I say that, get that right? Uh, I don't yeah, know, social control. Yeah. yeah, no, you keep going. Um, that'd be that'd be more the the functional one, right? That it's teaching, and then it's passing down. This is how we function, or as a society, sociological, and then ped- ped- pedagogical would lead us through particular rites of passage, which again kind of t- ties with the structural myth theory, the way of looking at it those ways. So. Again, I feel like it's getting bogged down if we use all these different terms. Um, you know, when we talk about like, I'll probably kind of go back to the first four just because that's what we kind of spent the most time talking about. But you will find similar realities described in different language, just depending on where you look too. Well, and so, you know, one of these things is I actually spent a little time here. When you said the, the rational one was uh, basically like myths, right? Um, yeah. To explain natural events, the cosmological, according to Campbell, is like the shape of the cosmos. Um, mm. And then, because I actually broke these down into like simple sentences, because again, okay. Mike's outline was like just like paragraphs. <laughs> it's like, yeah, yeah. Uh, but uh, you know, metaphysical when it's like awakening things to the wonder. Um, I think that you could call that structural, maybe. Uh, which is the pattern after the human mind and human nature. Uh, and I say structural in the sense that like, it's basically uh, the human, the human, human beings exist in order to like reflect 
back to God, like that rational interpretation of reality, right? Like our image of God ability is to mm-hmm. um, see the universe and like love it, you know, and, and to, to actually have an opinion about it kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, like a rock doesn't have an opinion about its own existence, right? Or the existence of the universe or whatever. And, you know, animals, they have different levels of co- uh, cognitive, you know, interpretation, things like that. But they're not even remotely close to the human level, right? So mm-hmm. I, I, that's why I would say that you can almost say that the metaphysical Campbell distinction, you know, mystery and wonder type thing, mm-hmm. that's almost like structural because it's, it's like the myths talk about the human mind and the human nature, maybe. The sociological, where it's like the myth uh, passes down the law, uh, that would yeah. be functional because that's social control. Yep. Uh, and then the pedagogical would be the, um, well, that would be a little left out, wouldn't it? That would be. Well, I kind of had that with psychological at the end, but. Um, well, and, and that's where it would fall according to like my little breakdown right now. Yeah. Is it would be. Um, yeah, I think structural and psychological, like you said, they kind of blur together in ways mm. that the other three or the other two, you know, don't. It's not as clear cut. Yeah, yeah exactly. So um, I think we should, you know, bef- before uh, too many more uh, tune out, we should probably get into the uh, the examples, <laughs> the actual stories. So obviously, I mean, the, f- the first ones that you would kind of think of or look at when you think of the rational or cosmological myths, the one where, you know, it's helping you understand um, reality or make sense of, right, the logos re- um, of the universe creation myths are like the first ones, right? Now, mm-hmm. obviously some creation myths or some creation stories do it better than others. This is one of the things that, you know, and, and I didn't obviously come up with this or, or make this up and maybe you've come across this before, but you'll see in a lot of uh, um, Catholic, like, you know, either commentaries on Genesis or people just doing, you know, trying to teach the Genesis story and they'll usually construct the days of creation uh, according to a house. So they'll have like the first three days you have the God creates, separates dark and light, separates the water from the air earth from the sky, and then separates the land from the water. That's like God setting the forms, setting the spaces. And then four five and six, God is, is like filling each of those, putting the well, furniture it's filling in the, the spaces. Kind of. Yeah. So you have day four correlates with day one because you have dark and light. And then on day four, it's sun, moon, and stars. You yep. have day um, five correlate with two because it's filling the water in the air with the fish and the birds. And then you have day six correlate with um, day three. You fill the land with everything that walks upon the ground and then obviously humanity. Yeah. So sure. what that's doing though, besides the fact that it's talking about how God has this hand in creating stuff, is that it's creating an order, right? It's creating a cosmos out of the chaos of the waters. And so that fits right along with the, you know, and like I said, every, every, you know, culture, every mythology has a creation myth of some kind. Some just emphasize that cosmos part of it differently or, or better than others. Yeah. You know, I would say, and the reason why I like cosmological better than rational, right. As like a phrase Mm -hmm. for this type of idea is that the cosmos just means everything. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so rationality as such is our, our interpretive tool, Right. It's the way that it's the tool our mind has in order to like connect dots. Right. So, in other words, instead of there just being a mass of dots, we can actually identify patterns. We can actually yeah. connect those dots. Uh, that's just the cosmos. The cosmos is just all the dots connected. 
it's the it's the it's everything and how everything fits together right mm-hmm. and so they're rational you want to call that rational that's fine it's it's slightly different than cosmological but mm-hmm. cosmological fits better for that when you use yeah. genesis's account of the creation of the world it fits it fits the cosmological model really really well mm-hmm. definitely and it doesn't have to just be, you know, the creation of everything. It could just be like, you know, a lot of those just so stories that you would have encountered. Why does the, you know, turtle have a hard shell or why does this do that? Those kind of fit within this because it's still you're making sense of even if it's a more limited part of the world, but it still falls under that cosmological category. You know, it's a cosmological myth or it's a way of viewing um, the mytho- mythological story. Yeah, sure. Well, um, and here, let Pandora's me. Pandora's box. Pandora's box fun, is another good one too. Here's a fun one. Me, Mister American History Buff guy. Um, I I heard this in a video once, and I actually thought it was really really compelling. Um, which is that World War II is in the context of this conversation a mm-hmm. cosmological, uh, or even uh, a rational myth, but it'd be like a cosmological myth, like basically. Def- no, I- I, I know exactly what you mean, but I'll let you finish. Yeah. Yeah. Well, sure. so like basically um, everything that we exist in, everything that's post-World War II in our society basically mm-hmm. traces its roots to the fallout of World War II, right? And so the world that we are striving to create now, um, less than 100 years later still, uh, it's crazy that World War II was less than 100 years ago, um, mm-hmm. but uh is basically a reflection on the principles that were laid down in the great fight between the Allies and the Axis, right? Uh, in the Western mm-hmm. Hemisphere, anyway. Um, and so the idea of uh, pursuing equality, the idea of you know getting rid of bigotry and things like that, these are all principles that are basically a reflection of like uh, removing ourselves as far from Nazism as possible. Right, because mm-hmm. Nazis are like the great central bad guy of uh, modernity <laughs> as such, yeah. but uh, but that just means the 20th century, you know. Um, and so, and I could I could actually go on, but I want to derail the entire conversation just talking about World War II. But um, cosmological myth doesn't have to be something as far back as tales of how like the world was formed as such. They yeah. can be how your rationality was formed like how you interpret the cosmos was formed. And in our context, I would say that World War II is the mm-hmm. origin story for how we how we in general as a western society like interpret reality, you know. It's our cosmological yeah. myth. Well, and I mean, this will kind of fit in with our next one, but you almost think like there was a sort of new beginning. I mean, with the whole, like the baby boom that happened after world war two. And Mm -hmm. so you have to sort of look, well, what was right before that? What precedes it is it was this creation out of this chaos, right? World war two. And so it seems only fitting that the defining feature of that creation out of chaos would be the thing that forms you moving forward. Well, and you know, so like go back to the Genesis story, right? Let's say you have the flood, and the flood wipes away all of humanity except for Noah or whatever. And then what immediately mm-hmm. happens is that Noah repopulates the earth. Um, and that population um, kind of builds the Tower of Babel, right? 
Um, mm. I would argue <laughs> that's kind of what you see in our post-World War II reality, where you have just, this... The cycle this, repeats, yeah. Yeah, this crazy destruction. You know, European destruction, Western civilization destruction. I mean, America wasn't destroyed by World War II, per se, but it did have the Depression. You know, it was this super transformative moment that was right at the exact same time as World War II, in which World mm. War II arguably was the main reason that we got out of the Great Depression in a lot of ways. And so it, it still works, right? Mm. Um, it's still that whole 30s, 40s reality that is the kind of origin story. But then it creates this huge, massive population boom. And that huge, massive population boom creates the empire that we that well, we are living in right now. Okay, you know? so this is, you know, I'm going off off script a little bit, but isn't that part of the Babylonian creation story is that it was this fight amongst the gods that led to creation? And so wouldn't that be sort of fitting that you have this nothingness, which is kind of like you were saying, the Great Depression, then you have this big fight, the chaos, and out of that comes this new beginning. It, it's it's almost like, I mean, it, it is kind of weird to even think about it, and, and I'd want to kind of reflect on it further, almost. Um, we're getting very, uh, you know, Jonathan Pajot, uh symbolic <laughs> world going on a little bit. Oh, but that's it, what I, you I do, get for having it, me on your podcast. Well, I love that. So you, you mentioned the, the biblical flood myth, but actually, if you move into our second one, the, the functional myth. So the functional myth, if you remember, it's the myths were created, you know, to ensure stability in society. So there's sort of a moralistic element to mm. this. Yep. And uh, you see that in the biblical story, right? I mean, why did the flood come? Because of the sins of humanity. But I discovered in getting ready for this episode, an, a flood myth that I was unfamiliar with. So in Fiji. Okay, in Fiji. In Fiji, there's a flood myth. Um, and I may pronounce this wrong. I double checked. But uh, a tribe who rebelled against the great serpent god Ndenge. And it's so always a like serpent god, isn't it? Well, always in, a well, serpent god <laughs> in so this is yeah and uh but they um so they learn all these skills from the god which again that's a very classic element of mythology is that the god directly you know teaches the people this important skill that keeps them alive the but, serpent god gave the people knowledge what yeah yeah okay Fun, you know techne you could almost say Dang. Uh, but they were but they were in dengue's workers and servants and you had two who would um who refused to work and so then they were like, then Ndenge sends this flood. And basically it was to teach, you know, that to be a good loyal citizen is to be a working citizen and that sort of thing. But it had this, like I said, this. That's so um, funny. Well, well and, just and like because said, it is, it's like a strange. Across. Well, listen, I mean, the reason why I think it's funny is like, it's funny how that is such a kind of inversion, right? Where obviously... Mm-hmm. Genesis story, you have the serpent come down, gives Adam and Eve the knowledge of an evil. They leave the garden, and then the Nephilim come down and give them a bunch of techni, right? Yeah. And they use that techni, and they're really good workers, actually, with all that techni. But that's what destroys the world, and that's why the flood has to happen, is because they're working too hard, and they're too good at using all that they technology. Yeah. yeah, to, um, you know, uh, they turn into monsters, well, basically, right? And this Fiji myth is basically like, no, the serpent god came down, gave you technology, but you didn't use it enough. 
And so then yeah. you had to be flooded out so that you would be taught well, to use it better, you know? And you could definitely see how that would be used as like a reinforcing a power dynamic, right? If that's if you want to have that kind of cynical view of of mythology, you could definitely see how it'd be very convenient for that to be your functional. Well, dude, myth, no, right? and I I don't even think that's cynical. Although, I mean, I don't know. Uh, maybe someone would call that cynical, but I'm not sure what the I'm not sure what the it's proper fallen, use of myth. I'm fallen not sure. human nature. Fallen human nature. It'd be. Well, like, the, where I was going with that is just that mythology. The reason why mythology matters. And the reason why I think it's really, really important to have one mythology of, let's say, America, right, um, mm. instead of competing mythologies of America, is because we can't function as a society if we don't have unifying social controls, quote unquote, that are baked yeah. into our stories, right? Here's what I don't want. I don't want a fascist state in which your morality has to be dictated to you by legal means, I want a state in which people do the right thing because they want to do the right thing because it feels like the right thing to do. And you mm. get the feels like the right thing to do from the stories you're told, right? Mm. So without these stories that give us quote-unquote social controls or yeah. you know, basically rules to live by, um, y- you end up with chaos. You, you know, that's well, the problem. And we've talked about in the past, especially during October, how, you know, horror movies are like the new morality tales. And mm-hmm. so for better or worse, whether they're teaching, you know, the quote unquote right version of morality or not, they still are almost to an explicit or obvious degree trying to teach you, you know, the good, like good and good and evil. And we'll roll our eyes when we have a story in the Bible, try to tell us what's good and evil, but we'll very much, (laughs) you know, we'll, we'll accept, we'll, we'll mouths agape. We'll gladly eat, you know, whatever is being fed to us when it comes to, if there, if it has some sort of extreme emotion tied to it. Mm -hmm. Well, and so like, and well, I'll just caveat me being the guy that likes horror movies so much, but I will caveat is especially the further we get into the 21st century, you you see a lot more horror movies that are not fitting that bill. But a Mm. lot of them were and a lot of them did. And a lot of them have throughout the history of cinema and things like that. Uh, you well, know, we've just deconstructed it now, which well, we've deconstructed yeah. everything. And so, there's just I mean, like a lot of really bad stuff out there, to be honest. The reality <laughs> is, is that like there's a lot of really gross horror out there that's like unredeemable. It's, it's just well, the, bad. The, it's the gore porn. Yeah, it's the gore yeah. porn stuff, the uh, the torture porn stuff. It's also uh, there's a there's a level of embracing anarchy for the sake of embracing anarchy. There's mm. some real there's a real demonic zeitgeist now in which. It's like it's deconstructive of society for the sake of the yucks, right? Like we want to, we want to embrace, it's, you know, the it's the it's inversion. Alfred Some people just want to watch the world burn. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's it's that type of horror now. Mm. So there's there's a big mix, and to some extent, there's always been that. You know, especially in the sixties and seventies, you start to get some really weird horror too. Um, but you know that's why in the 40s and 50s, 30s, 40s and 50s, you actually had the uh, the Hayes Code. You know there was like censorship in Hollywood, mm. and yeah. it wasn't censorship dictated by the government. It was self-imposed. Can you believe that? Mm. Can you can you imagine <laughs> that the Hollywood moguls back in the day actually were like, we better set up a referee for ourselves to ensure that we are producing movies that don't break down the social order. 
because if we don't, somebody else will, aka like Uncle Sam. And and so they hmm. did, right? And then, you know, it lasted for about 30 years, but then like, you know, New Hollywood killed it, I guess. Uh, but uh, yeah, the 60s. Well, I love that decade, <laughs> man. It was so good for us. Um, <laughs> anyway. Yeah. Uh, so the next one is the the structural, and I kind of lumped it with the metaphysical to use Campbell's language, but it's the structural myths are said to be myths based on human emotion, types of myths that show the two sides of the human mind, um, which, like I said, this isn't quite the like, you know, higher self, shadow self of Carl Jung. That's kind of going to be more the next category. But um, just sort of, I guess, it, you know, it's well, actually, the, so I, the I reconsidered it. Of I reconsidered okay. it. So here's the, here's what occurred to me is that the structural myth theory mm-hmm. is that that's like pattern after the human mind and human nature, right? That's yeah. what that one is. The pedagogical function, is that the one that's like rites of passages? Like that's the one where it's like you, you're, yeah. you're okay. Those two go together. The, the one where it's pattern after the human mind and the human nature is the archetypes and things like that. That's uh-huh. the structural myth. That's also rites of passage. Those two. Okay. So, so Campbell's idea that you have myths that teach human beings how to be human in like a deep sense and like this mm-hmm. is your place in the universe sense, rites of passage yeah. and all that type of stuff. I think that's also the same thing as saying that these myths come out of like the building blocks of human of a human consciousness, well, like the see, DNA kind of, of goes, like what a human is. And even that, the way that you're describing it, touches upon the idea of, of cosmological of how this is just the structure of reality, the structure of the universe. And so everything else is going to be based off of that. It's going to be patterned from mm-hmm. these and permeate this, this each will, other. Like these, well, this is, it's all permeable. I think this is going to tie in when we start talking about the four senses of scripture, because one of the points that the church always emphasizes with the four senses is that while they all support each other and complement each other, all the spiritual, the the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical still need to be based upon the literal. So, and um, and obviously you have to have a, an understanding of what the literal, not literalist, like for 24 hour or seven 24 hour days of creation, but literal in terms of what the intention of the author was. Well, you know, let's just remind everyone, literal just means what the text says. That's, that's why it's literal. That's why it's literature, right? It's literally according to the literature. So what the document says, that's what we mean when we say literal. It's like, no, it's not It's not your paraphrase of what the document says. It's not your interpretation of what the document says. It's what the document says. Now, notice, like, in our modern colloquialism, we use literal to mean, like, real or, or actually or something like that. But that's like uh, that's an evolution of the term. the The word it's a be- it it doesn't actually correlate with what the word meant or what it should mean. Basically, a corruption. Be- actually. Yeah, it, yeah. Corruption it, because if I say Genesis literally says the world was created in seven days, that's true. <laughs> if you read the text of Genesis, if you read the literature of Genesis, it says seven days. But mm. I am also free to interpret those seven days as not a day of 20, a 24-hour cycle, right? Yeah. I'm not saying that you have to. You can interpret it as a 24-hour cycle. Um, that's beside the point. The point is, yeah. if I say God literally made the world in, in seven days, all I really mean, me, is that that's how the story is given to us in the text, right? Mm. I personally 
I'm agnostic. I am legitimately agnostic about this question, but mm-hmm. I'm willing to fall more on the side of saying that it was probably more than a seven 24-hour period cycle. That That's probably um, just a different way of describing reality and, and not meant to be a scientific one. But mm-hmm. hey, I, I could be wrong on that. Um, and I don't really yeah. lose sleep over it. But uh, that, But that doesn't mean that I'm not taking the Bible literally. I am mm-hmm. taking the Bible literally. I think it's important to keep. I don't think we should ever rewrite scripture and change that text from not seven twenty-four hour out twenty-four or hour. Or give days. this huge, or give this huge parenthetical of like, well, you yeah. Know, by the way, it doesn't mean it's like mm-hmm. no. You're then it's it becomes a because then it, it loses like when we talk about myth meaning sacred story. Yeah. Which I mean, then it's losing the you know it's losing that story element, which is just as important as the quote unquote true element when you start using that word. Yeah. If you start paying attention to the actual scientific details of the creation of the cosmos, that's fine. It's the equivalent of talking about you know I have a liver, you know I have a spleen, right? Um, hey, those are important details and they really matter in a certain context. Um, mm-hmm. But when it comes to getting to know Jacob. It's isn't like, yeah, liver, you, you know, I have a liver and a spleen. You know, that's true about me. Um, isn't the but liver where the emotions are in the ancient yeah, mindset? Well, yeah. Isn't that where your emotions yeah, are? Yeah. So yeah, it is well, good that you have one. It also <laughs> leads us into the next uh, <laughs> thing, doesn't it? Well, so, well, I mean, uh, just a, one quick double back on the structural myth um, view is the one focused on human emotion, the good, good and bad sort of dark and light. Um, you see, I mean, a good example of this is in Hercules where uh, Hercules, you know, he's a hero, right? Hero in the classical sense of the term, but mm-hmm. it doesn't mean that everything he, go- he does is always good, right? He does selfish things. Um, he does things that aren't always the most prudent. And, you know, we consider that nowadays as, well, that's a three-dimensional character, right? We want those flawed heroes. Oh, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. So the fact that, like, to just assume that, that that's always been sort of the case. I mean, we always have that that aspect of mythology, that structural, you know, that showing well, both sides of humanity. And that's a, this is a good thing to point out. It helps understand why the word structure is used, because it's ultimately about good and evil, Right. In other words, like the structure of the universe, the reason why they use this structure language is we're talking about like the the foundations of reality at this point, mm. you know, um, like we're talking about what's right and wrong um, and all that good stuff. Mm. And so well, you have if you have a story of like, you know, a person doing good behavior, or a person doing bad behavior. You, you get those lessons. You get that pedagogy well, to use. And uh, this is Campbell. why I grouped it with metaphysical. So Campbell's language of metaphysical, because the deeper reality too, like sometimes we think of, when we think of good and evil, people primarily think of morality, like you did a good thing or a bad thing, like a nice thing or a not nice thing. But good and evil has a deeper metaphysical sense than it does a moral sense. Something is morally evil or morally good because it is based upon the metaphysical goodness or the metaphysical badness, right? The taking away of of reality. Mm. And like you said, structural um, is a, a useful term to kind of see that connection between the two. Well, and like I said, I think they all permeate each other. And so I do think that you can clump these together. And frankly, it's one of those things where it's kind of like you're mixing your ingredients, like, um, and you can get different flavor combinations <laughs> by mm. like, you know, hey, it's a salad bar, folks. Go ahead and make your sandwich the way you want it to. Um, if salad I, and you're making a sandwich. Now you're really mixing some. 
<laughs> said it's a salad bar, yeah. but you can make your sandwich. So. You can, you know, yeah, I guess now I you're did. mixing metaphors okay. too. <laughs> it's, you're, or no, I'm sorry. Your metaphors are permeating each other. To use I kind of wonder language. if this episode is going to make any sense when we actually go back and I think it's going. It. I think it's going great. Is it I going think, great? I, I love it. I love. All right, it. Yeah. that's good. Um, so the last but, one. Oh, but, so this is no. This is where I was going to go. If you go to the last one, where it's like the psychological, which is like emotion driven mythology and then you you pair it with uh campbell's metaphysical which is awaking us to mystery and wonder i think Mm -hmm. that those things they pair really well together because if uh your psychological theory of myth is that it's rooted in um the emotional needs of humanity and then you talk Mm -hmm. about campbell talking about how myths um break down our kind of over um logical rationalistic side and allow us to like be a part of like the bigger picture open us up to the mystery and the wonder and things like that i think that's that's an emotional need right um okay it's it's more than an emotional need frankly but i think it correlates well with the idea of feeling peaceful feeling happy feeling 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 right Mm. emotions you know um so metaphysical psychological i think they pair well when I look at these, this set of these two sets of four. So, and this is where, um, well, I think, cause, cause the, the reason why I put it with pedagogical, pedagogical is the whole like rites of passage. It's knowing your place in the community and it, it pairs with the psychological because that's where, you know, like I said, this is the one that's kind of more like Carl Jung, like the archetypes. Mm-hmm. And even though, you know, we would see it as reductionistic, but when in a sense, when you have the the nerd, the jock, the burnout, the when everybody knows their quote unquote role, things do fit together, right? In terms of a kind of social or in a sociological sense. And so in a sense, it's sort of like you have all the archetypes and they're balancing each other out, which is if you look at the wheel that um Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell would use for archetypes. The whole idea is that, you know, the one archetype will balance out the other one. The hero, the higher self balances out the shadow self. The trickster will balance out the mentor. So like they, they um, all are supposed to kind of like uphold what everybody who fits in his or her place is supposed to kind of like keep everything going or keep the wheel turning, so to speak. Mm, I see. Um, You want to, so this is, this is going to be off your outline and uh, let's see here. How, how much time? How much time do we got? That's the real um, question. About I think. fifteen minutes. We got about fifteen minutes. All right. You know what occurred to me is that I created. I created like lessons for my kids. I've talked about this in other podcasts where like they were way too young <laughs> for these lectures. Yeah. These lessons that I created, but I had one on myth, and I pulled it up right before jumping on this podcast just to like review how I would talk about myth. And okay. I, I actually wouldn't mind sharing, because there's some pretty good stuff in here for the sake of this podcast that I think would work really well in conjunction. By all means. It. Yeah. <laughs> some deep cut, deep, deep yeah, cut. This clay, is, uh, yeah, yeah, this is, it's going to, uh, but then I'll have to make sure we have time to go through the kind of biblical interpretation stuff, right? We want to try to cover that before the episode. Sure. Done. Sure. <laughs> I'll just indulge you. I'll just uh, indulge you. All right. Well, you know, <laughs> Uh, you know, so when I was talking about mythology, right? So 
what I would say is that mythology comes from a worldview that is pre-science, right? And so, or pre-enlightenment, let's say, pre-scientific investigation. And what that means in practice is that, like, if if the enlightenment and the scientific worldview is about um, identifying data, identifying you know trivia, and then comparing and contrasting that data in order to like form logical theorems about like how reality works Mm -hmm. pre that there was only story and so Mm -hmm. story was the only kind of data you had and that type of data is not the same thing as like numbers on a table right graphs and Mm -hmm. pie charts or or kind of scientific analysis or whatever um and so when you have a world in which the only kind of fact that exists there's only one kind of fact and that's called a story. And so mm-hmm. everything gets condensed down. Ultimately, what happened in the Enlightenment was that we created different types of ways of knowing. Suddenly, you could talk about the human body as spleens and livers and hearts and lungs. Suddenly, yeah. you could talk about the human body as like the seat of consciousness. Or you could talk about the human body as like a social creature or something like that. Uh, you know, in a world in which like we don't have like that type of data differentiation... There's only just like people. There's only just like who mm-hmm. people are. This is why, you know, like people were outraged at um, autopsies back in the day. Mm-hmm. If for a very, very, very long time, the human person was way too sacred to cut up in that type of way. And it didn't matter, like this idea that we could cut up human bodies in order to like study them and like mine data out of them. Um, that was just, who cares, anathema, right? Because it yeah. doesn't fit a storybook mentality, a story-driven reality kind of thing. Um, mm-hmm. And when you have a world in which like everything is a story, it means, think about what a story is. A story is you have a character. That character goes on a journey, right? We've talked about this before in the Campbell context, mm-hmm. I, right? I was going to say yeah. a hero, you could say. You I, might I even say a hero, yeah. yeah. Um, you have, But you have a person of interest, like, but he's a person, right? He mm-hmm. goes on a journey. He achieves something, right? That's like the most basic fundamental thing about what a story is. Well, map that onto everything. Map that onto all of reality. So trees are people, and they have a purpose. They have a journey that they go on. The universe is a character. It has a mm-hmm. journey that it goes on. You are a character. You are a person. You have a journey that you go on, right? And so that, and this goes in like, so if you get into like Aristotle's physics and things like that, you, you for, know, like four causes. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about the final cause again. It's like if everything within nature has a, an order, like it's ordered towards something, then all of nature is ordered towards something. So, like you said, the, the universe is on a quote unquote journey towards its end, towards its destination or its right. telos. Well, yeah. and, and that's very true, but I was going to go even more quasi-scientific than that and say that like, when, when ancient philosophers like Aristotle, they would offer explanations for like, why does, like, when they're trying to explain gravity, for example, they would be like, mm, yeah. the dirt, like, if you lift up a stone and it falls back to the earth, it's because the stone wants to go back to its rightful place. Love its rightful it, state. It's gravity. Yeah, that's and a it quote goes from back. Augustine. Yeah. Well, and it goes back to the, like its homies like the rest of the mm-hmm. rocks, right? In other words, there's a sense of agency even in the stone. Like material mm-hmm. elements have a sense of agency in 
universally, universally in a pre-modern mm. mindset. Everything has an agency to it, right? And so when you start to get this, what happens, I think, with like modern people trying to uh, define myths and they'll come up with things like the rational thing. The, you know, human beings, they saw lightning and they said, well, I'm going to make up a god to explain where the lightning comes from. And it's like, oh, mm-hmm. that's just like Thor pounding his hammer. And, you know, that's <laughs> the, the noise and that's the sparks and all that stuff. And, and that, that, I think that's what people mean. Or at the very least, that's what a lot of people think those people mean when they read mm-hmm. an explanation like that. But what I would say is that back in the day, if you actually had a Viking person there and he was talking about like the thunder is Thor pounding out like, you know, with his hammer or or something like that. Mm. They're not, it wasn't like, I wonder what that is. Oh, I know I'm going to make up a story to explain it. It's like, no, that, that is, there's something like that is Thor. It's not just like Mm. Thor is the explanation for thunder and lightning like it is an embodiment it's a it's a manifestation of the agency of thor in reality right thor is bigger than just the name on a page or the mm-hmm. picture in right like head. it it is it's they didn't make up the story to explain to explain it they just recognized it like as such i'm probably doing a mm-hmm. bad job explaining this but this is my take on how mythology worked in the pre-modern mind. Um, and that that goes through everything. It goes through, you know, if you read um, the Trojan War, the Iliad, and uh, Achilles mm-hmm. is about to kill Agamemnon, and all of a sudden um, Athena comes and, and holds him back. Well, Athena is the goddess of wisdom, right? So, so it's like, like yeah. wisdom held no. him back. He's like, oh, I'm going to stab this guy. But then he's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't. That wouldn't be really wise to do, would it? And the the pre-modern mind is going to be like, Athena held you back. Gosh, imagine personifying wisdom. Can you think of any <laughs> context where somebody would have the nerve to personify wisdom? That's just, I mean, wow, you know? Right. What? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and, so, and, you know, I don't know. Like, uh, so these kind of modern, these kind of modern breakdowns and things like that, I think like they're valuable, especially for modern minds, you know, where it's, it's, it's helpful to like break things apart and stuff like that. But mm-hmm. um, I don't think that you can understand it from the mindset of the people who made it by doing that. I think, mm-hmm. I think that that's not how the people who created the myths would describe these things. Um, but well, I think yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a kind of translation, let's say into yeah. a different worldview. Um, That's fair. And you but. thought I'd be the only one monologuing. <laughs> so um, the last sort of segment that uh, I wanted us to move into, and we've alluded to it a couple of times throughout, but how in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, you will find not the exact same thing of what we've sort of been describing in terms of how to look at myths or how to better understand myths, but the catechism does give these senses of scripture, these four senses of scripture to help the, and this is something that this is not some of the catechism invented by any means. This goes back, you know, to basically the church fathers. Um, St. Ambrose uh, is, is very well known for incorporating a lot of these, which actually became very important to the conversion of St. Augustine. St. Augustine originally 
dismissed the scriptures because he thought they were they were so ridiculous sounding. And it wasn't sure. until he was exposed to St. Ambrose, the Bishop of Milan, preaching through these other lenses of scripture that Augustine was... Um, it, it, it wasn't the direct thing that led to his conversion, but it, it sowed this, it was um, tilling, yeah, the soil, tilling the soil. Tilling the soil. Yeah. So, uh, so the first is the literal sense, which, and sorry, Jacob, this is right from the catechism again, so it's another kind of quote, but it's, uh, uh-huh. convey, it's conveying the words of scripture and dis- that's discovered by exegesis, which is again, drawing out the interpretation, not imposing one's interpretation on it. And this becomes the most foundational because the other three senses have to be based first on the literal. And you did a good job of showing how literal does not mean literalist, that literal means what the author intends in writing what the author actually said. Sure. See, there can't be a death of the author because the uh, the ultimate author is the Holy Spirit, and so there's no <laughs> death true. of the author here. Jacob. I I agree. I I think <laughs> the death of author concept uh, is important. It's true, like it's true, but it can be abused, right? There's for the a, human author. It works. Yeah. yeah so. There there's there's good death of author type. This concept of like your interpretation matters as much as the the writer's intent. Well, your interpretation is an art. There's an art mm. to interpretation, which means there's bad art and there's good art. You mm. know, there's bad interpretation and there's good interpretation. So death of the author is not a blank check to just like mm. make up whatever you want something to say. And, you know, maybe listeners would try to accuse us of doing this when we like, you know, throw lots and lots of interpretations on top of the stories that we are talking about. But I, I'm not saying that you can't do it. I'm just saying that it has to be justifiable. And it has to be artfully done, right? And it can't it be, be at the expense. To, yeah, faithful to the tradition, faithful to the tradition, right. whether that tradition is sacred tradition or just the mythological tradition, like whether it's from the Greek culture or whatever the case is. Um, so then the, the second category, so the first category is just the literal. Second category is the spiritual. And within the spiritual sense, um, you that includes the allegorical, which is seeing how, um, or it's a more profound understanding of how the events and the people find their ultimate significance or their fulfillment in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean just the person of Jesus, but it could mean like the things or the people surrounding the person of Jesus. Uh, the the primary example, I don't know if I'll have time to talk about this um, today because we're r- sort of running out of time, but the the first like biggest example that always comes up is the um, connection between something like the flood and the crossing of the Red Sea with baptism. Now, ultimately, its significance is found in Christ, but this is more the event surrounding the person of Jesus. Another big one is the Passover lamb and the crucifixion, but sure. not just the crucifixion. The, the church refers to it as the Paschal mystery, how the Last Supper, agony in the garden, the scourging, the death, the burial, and the resurrection all get lumped together, all get included. So that's kind of the allegorical. The moral, as it sounds, has to do with how to live one's life. What are the, what's the morality? How is this telling me, how is this Bible story telling me how to live, right? Which, unfortunately, it seems like a lot of people will reduce the Bible to just a set of morality tales or just yeah. a, you know, list of morality. Right. And then the last one is called the anagogical, which the word um, anagoge just means leading or to lead because the anagogical sense is supposed to lead the reader to one's ultimate destiny. So how is it describing um, not necessarily like literal heaven, but just like the, the, um, 
the u- unity between God and humanity that Christ ultimately brings about. Well, the telos, right? Like the yeah. the purpose for everything, you know. Yeah, the 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 whole points, right? Uh, of scripture and things like that. How is it? How is it reinforcing the whole point kind of thing? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and when so these four things: literal, um, allegorical, uh, moral, moral, and um, what was the last one? Anagogical. Anagogical. Yeah, right. Yep. Yeah. I mean, like they're they're really really helpful ways to kind of look through the Russian Russian nesting doll that is the scripture, right? Mm-hmm. I think that the the kingly one, for my money, is the typological or the allegorical, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think the, the literal is foundational. Like. Mm-hmm. It, it you have to have that you have to have the story you have to have the text right and mm-hmm. you have to know the story and you have to even believe the story you know um it's really important for us to to genuinely believe journalistically that christ was born of a virgin like the creed you know born of the virgin mm-hmm. suffered on a pontius Pilate, died buried rose again um you know you need to take that literally in both the ancient sense that it's according to the text, but also the modern sense of like, it's actually true, you know, like it historically happened. Yeah. Yeah, It historically happened. Um, but when it comes to personal enrichment and Mm -hmm. nourishment, this idea of, uh, the typology or the allegory of everything where, you know, we actually are living out in our own lives, the stories of the Bible in Christ, right? We Mm -hmm. are becoming Christ allegorically and that doesn't mean like we're larping it's not supposed to mean that it's not like we are pretending yeah we actually are participating so when we're baptized we are passing through the red sea Mm -hmm. like we are doing that we are with we are doing the exact same thing israel did yeah we are being buried with christ yeah exactly Mm -hmm. it's not it's not a metaphor right allegorical Mm -hmm. is not metaphorical well, right. and similarly, one of the things that the priest will say at Mass is, um, uh, pray, my brothers and sisters, that my sacrifice and yours may be acceptable to God. Because the whole idea is that if we are receiving communion, we're uniting ourselves with the sacrifice of Jesus, so we become part of that sacrifice, right? We participate right. in the sacrifice. Sure. So, uh, But then also, go. obviously, yeah. you know, the, the moral stuff's important too, and then the pedagogical, you know. It all it's just like everything we talked about the entire episode is they permeate they all permeate each other you can't you can't lose well, any of it, it it's and all I important. think what you were kind of saying too is one of the big things that we always try to emphasize on on this show and voyage in general is finding the seeds of the word and this is what the early Christians were doing with the old myths is they were able to find the seeds of the word in those um, ancient pagan mythologies and they're able to point them back and connect them to Christ. And mm-hmm. so that's why, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the four functions of or the four ways to view, view mythology is because then it can tie one into these four liter- these four senses of scripture and you can find those seeds of the word much easier in, you know, like that Fiji flood story or the story of Hercules or the story of whatever, you know, we talked about Thor a little bit. So yep. all of those, so that's sort of the big, I guess, um, rationale. Uh, this is how we find the cosmos out of the chaos of all the different stories of the world. How's that yep. for uh, tying it all together, Jacob? It's, that's, you did it. You nailed it. Couldn't, couldn't have said it better uh, yourself, I think is what uh, you're trying yeah. to say. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. So... 
So yeah, thank you, Jacob, for uh, for indulging me for this one. And thank you guys for for listening. If you did make it all the way through, apparently, I think Jacob said it was going to be kind of a slog, but uh, you really <laughs> earned it. You really earned it. You earned you it. Stuck all the you way earned through. your stripes. We're so going to start wanna, handing out merit badges for overcoming Mike's So, uh, so if you really pedagogy. made it all the way through, then you really should like and subscribe, leave a five-star rating for the show. Because, I mean, if, if, if this is the one you listened all the way through for, then I think, you know, it really deserves it, doesn't it? But, <laughs> I would uh, say yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks again, guys. And yeah, look forward to... And we, we just, we like doing this in all sorts of topics, whether it's, you know, we, we didn't do a whole lot of pop culture this time, but um, we like to do this with pop culture as well and just any sort of stuff we can find. So finding those seeds of the word. Are you waiting for me to have a final comment? Because my brain's yeah. mush at this point. No, if you I got nothing. Last, I'm just... last word uh, that this, yeah, anyway. Thanks for listening to Voyage Podcasts. The Voyage Podcast is a production of Voyage Comics and Publishing which seeks to create exceptional entertainment informed by Catholic values that inspire people to live a heroic life. Voyage Comics seeks to advance truth and beauty found in powerful stories. To learn more, visit voyagecomics.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram 